After the announcement of an historic nuclear agreement between Iran and the six world powers collectively referred to as the P5 plus one, the deal was met with mixed reviews. Some hailed the fact that an agreement was struck at all, while others called on the United States to walk away and try for a better deal down the line. After a whole lot of political wrangling, we now know that the president's signature diplomatic achievement will in fact survive Congress for the time being. The big question left is, what happens next? Hello and welcome to a brand new season of the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and before we get started, I just wanted to take a moment to welcome all of our new Boston Globe Opinion listeners. This is our 103rd episode of HKS PolicyCast, and we've covered just about every policy-related subject imaginable. If you're interested, you can find our whole back catalog at hkspolicycast.org, or follow us on Twitter, at PolicyCast. Today we're joined by Dr. Gary Seymour, Executive Director for Research at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs here at HKS. He served from 2009 to 2013 as President Obama's White House Coordinator for Arms Control and Weapons of Mass Destruction. Dr. Seymour, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So you were initially skeptical of whether we could come to an agreement with Iran at all. What changed? Well, what changed is that the red lines announced by Supreme Leader Khamenei turned out to be not really red lines. Uh, throughout the course of the last two years of negotiations, he has publicly stated certain demands that I knew the U.S. could never accept. And to the extent that those demands were serious, there wouldn't be an agreement. But at the end of the day, it turns out that the Iranians compromised on nearly all of those red lines the Supreme Leader announced. Mm. For example, he said that Iran would not allow any of its current stockpile of centrifuges uh, to be removed. Uh, in fact, they're accepting um, you know, a large-scale reduction in the centrifuges that are operating. Uh, he said that they had to insist on an immediate buildup of their capability. They've instead agreed to a long-term delay in buildup of their capacity. He said no inspection of military facilities, but the agreement doesn't have any special provisions. So what happened is that it turns out those were basically, I think, bargaining positions he was announcing in order to strengthen the hand of the negotiators. And at the end of the day, the Iranians made concessions that made a deal possible. So when the deal was finally announced, uh, I'm sure you had concerns with some of some of the tenets, some of the things that the P5 plus one gave up. Can you go into detail about sure. those? So, you know, the strength of the agreement is that for 15 years, it imposes physical limits on Iran's ability to produce fissile material. And it um, includes additional inspection and monitoring measures that I think will give us good confidence that we can detect cheating at declared facilities and improve our capacity to detect efforts by Iran to build secret facilities. That's the strength of the agreement. The weakness of the agreement is that it only lasts for 15 years, that many of those physical limits and monitoring provisions are lifted after 15 years. And it's really a gamble because we won't know in 15 years, we can't possibly know what the character of the Iranian government will be at that point and whether we would be comfortable with Iran having an unconstrained uh, enrichment program in 15 years. So the agreement, in my view, is very effective at uh, creating a long-term delay on Iran's ability to produce 
nuclear weapons, but at the cost of gambling that in 15 years we may be faced with exactly the same problem we have today, a government in Iran which we suspect is interested in producing nuclear weapons and is using its civil nuclear program as a cover, basically, to acquire that capability. One of the things opponents are worried about is that with the reduction of sanctions on Iran, Iran may not be in the same position that it is now in 15 years, but in a stronger position. Um, is that, you think that has merit? Well, it could. I mean, we can't predict in 15 mm -hmm. years what Iran will look like. Uh, Surplimeter Khamenei is very unlikely to live for 15 years. He's 70 six years old now. Most likely scenario is that uh, he will die in the course of that period and there'll be a succession and mm -hmm. we can't really predict who will be the next supreme leader, what the Iranian government will look like. Sure. You know, the U.S. made a strategic decision starting with the Bush administration that we would isolate the nuclear issue, that the, we would delink the nuclear issue from all of the other aspects of Iranian behavior that we um, uh, that pose a threat to us because the nuclear threat is so significant. Mm -hmm. And all the sanctions that we built up, starting with President Bush and then built on by President Obama, have been linked primarily, the international sanctions have been linked primarily to the nuclear issue. So I think it was inevitable that any nuclear deal was going to put money in the hands of the Iranians, and mm. they will use some of that money for purposes that we object to, including arming Hezbollah and propping up Assad and so forth. And I think the answer to that is not to uh, dispense with the nuclear deal, but to step up our game in dealing with those other elements of Iranian behavior that we object to. One of the reasons that uh, limiting Iran's nuclear capability became such an important goal was that the acquisition of a nuclear weapon in Iran would almost certainly kick off some kind of arms race within the region. With Iran's a greater economy, there's some threat that they will be able to exert more influence in the region. So is it really uh, all that great that, you know, they can't pursue a nuclear weapon if... Uh, there's still going to be a regional struggle. So I think there are um, real structural limits to Iran's ability to expand its influence in the Middle East. Uh, because Iran is fundamentally a Shia Persian country in a Middle East that's dominated by Sunni Arabs. Now, to the extent that the Iranians have been able to expand their influence, it's been because of weakness in the Sunni Arab world. Uh, much of it dealing, well, first of all, with the U.S. invasion of Iraq, but also with the Arab Spring. So the Iranians have been able to take advantage of a power vacuum to increase their influence. But for them, this is a very mixed blessing. I mean, the situation, they find themselves, you know, tied down in a very long-term conflict in both Syria and Iraq, where their allies, Hezbollah, in the case of Syria, and the Shia militia, in the case of Iraq, are fighting with ISIS and taking casualties. So I'm not sure it's an unmitigated blessing from Tehran's standpoint. Mm -hmm. In other areas where they've tried to meddle, like Yemen, um, they haven't been able to effectively respond to the Saudi intervention with U.S. support to intervene militarily. So in my view, 
the Iranians are not on the verge of taking over the Middle East. They're very limited in their capacity. And if we take effective measures with Israel and Saudi and Egypt and Turkey and other countries, we can contain Iran's influence. Do you think that the those other countries that you mentioned, Israel, Saudi, Turkey, do you think that they would share that, uh, that I guess, optimistic viewpoint of it? Or I suppose the, the threat isn't so much from Iran being able to exert the influence, but of the other countries being worried about that influence and, um, you know, responding accordingly. So there's a common interest there. I mean, we and the Israelis and Saudis <clears throat> and some Turkey all have a common interest in limiting Iran's influence. Mm. Whether that's effective or not, that can only be determined by actual U.S. behavior and mm. what happens on the ground. And it's not going to be fundamentally I mean, Obama will have to do that in his remaining year in office. But this is fundamentally going to be a project for the next president because I doubt any of the conflicts we see in the region are going to be terminated during Obama's presidency. The Syrian civil war will burn on. The civil war in uh, Iraq will burn on, maybe even Yemen. So these are all problems that will be inherited by the next administration. So uh, when the deal was announced uh, and you were looking through it, um, you were at that point the director of an advocacy organization called uh, United Against Nuclear Iran. Um, since then, you've declared your support for this deal and stepped down from that position. Uh, that organization seems not to support the deal. What's the daylight between how you view the you know, consequences of the deal and where, where they stand? I think, I mean, we can all agree on where the imperfections are in the agreement. We would all like to see more physical constraints, especially on Iran's enrichment program. We'd all like to see longer duration. We'd all like to see even tougher and more intrusive inspections. So everybody can agree that this is a, not a perfect agreement, that we made concessions in order to uh, come to an agreement. The question is whether or not you think it's practical to reject this agreement uh, and negotiate a better agreement. And I don't think that's a very uh, likely scenario. <clears throat> I don't say that if we rejected it, that would end all possibility of future negotiations. But I think for the foreseeable future, it's very unlikely we would be able to resurrect a strong enough inspection regime that would force the Iranians back to the bargaining table. When President Obama shifted to a sanction strategy in 2010, it took a couple of years for him to build up enough pressure on the Iranians to compel them to engage in serious negotiations. If we reject this agreement, I think it's very unlikely President Obama will have the capacity or the motivation to reassemble that kind of coalition. So it'll fall to the next administration probably take them a couple of years to work with our allies and uh, countries like China and Russia to reassemble that kind of pressure that would compel Iran to negotiate. And in the meantime, the Iranians will have advanced their nuclear program. They will build more centrifuges, more advanced centrifuges, build up their stockpile of low-enriched uranium. So if we do get back to the bargaining table in a couple of years, they're going to have more nuclear assets. And I'm not sure you end up with a fundamentally better deal. So my basic conclusion is 
it's better to take this deal, recognizing that it has limits and imperfections, than to run the risk of rejecting it and hoping that in a couple of years we can negotiate a better deal. Was there some kind of bar that you could uh, hypothetically have put out there uh, at which you wouldn't have supported this deal? Because presumably, whatever deal came out of it, um, you know, certainly other countries would be less willing to continue their sanctions. Did you have certain things that you absolutely needed to see in, in the deal? Well, I think there are three elements that were critical to me. One is physical limits on Iran's ability to produce fissile material. Because I have no confidence in Iran's claim that they are not interested in nuclear weapons. I mean, their behavior over the last 30 years convinces me that they are interested in nuclear weapons, despite their international commitments under the Nonproliferation Treaty. Mm -hmm. And I think this agreement for 15 years does impose physical limits on their capacity to produce fissile material. The second big piece of it was the inspection regime and making sure that we had an enhanced ability to monitor declared uh, facilities, and I think we do, and um, uh, measures that will make it more likely we will detect uh, efforts by Iran to build secret facilities. Which would fundament that fundamentally depends on intelligence, mm. and that'll continue to be the case with or without an agreement. But I think this agreement will help the CIA and our allied intelligence agencies if, in the future, uh, the Iranians once again decide to try to build secret nuclear facilities. Certainly, the recent past has shown that the CIA hasn't had the best ability of detecting. Uh, weapons of mass destruction in uh, foreign countries. Um, do you think that the concessions that the Iranians made in this deal um, are enough that the world community can be confident um, that we would detect uh, any kind of nuclear activity outside the parameters of the agreement? Well, I would say that the U.S. <clears throat> and the ability of our allied intelligence agencies to detect clandestine nuclear activities varies tremendously from country to country. In the case of North Korea and Iraq, we've been miserable. We've been very, and very, very bad. Mm -hmm. In the case of uh, Iran uh, and Pakistan, we've been very capable. And I think that's not by chance. I think that reflects a difference in the capability of those countries. So countries like North Korea or uh, a, a country like Iraq under uh, Saddam Hussein, they were very, very hard targets with very effective counterintelligence capabilities, and it was very hard for us to collect good, you know, good intelligence. <clears throat> In the case of Iran, we've been much more effective. I mean, we have detected both Natanz and Fordow when they were still under construction, undeclared, uh, well before they were finished, and I think that reflects uh, certain you know, structural capacity that we have to collect information, we and others, because of course we work closely with Israel and um, uh, the Brits and the French and the Germans and so forth. I think that will continue. I think it'll be relatively difficult for Iran to successfully cheat in a major way, and by that I mean build a clandestine facility to process nuclear material. And I think the agreement will enhance our capacity to detect that kind of cheating. Of all the concessions that the P5 plus one made to Iran, are there any particular ones that stand out to you as, as the biggest concerns, I suppose? Well, we made two big concessions to get a deal. The first concession was that we're prepared to accept a much larger enrichment infrastructure than what our opening position was. 
Our opening position was that Iran would be limited to a couple of hundred centrifuges of the first generation type, no research on more advanced machines for 20 to 25 years. In the final deal, we've agreed to accept several thousand centrifuges of the first generation type, but that Iran can conduct uh, research and development on more advanced machines and the duration lasts for only 10 to 15 years. So that was a big concession we made. The second uh, you know, major concession uh, was um, in the area of what the duration was which, as I said, is one of the gambles that are included in this agreement. Mm -hmm. Of course, the Iranians also made big concessions. I mean, if they had stuck to the Supreme Leader's red lines, there wouldn't be an agreement. And, uh, you know, as it turned out, those were not re really serious red lines. Sounds like a very capable negotiator. <laughs> <laughs> well, both sides negotiated. Right? Certainly. I mean, both sides wanted this deal. And, and you wouldn't ha have had an agreement unless there was strong motivation on the part of both sides to get an agreement. I think the primary motivation on our side was to contain the nuclear threat, mm. and the primary motivation on Iran's side was to get sanctions relief. I, you know, I'm not sure <clears throat> that that's a really good formulation for the agreement having much, you know, durability. It doesn't reflect any broader, you know, rapprochement between Washington and Tehran. We'll continue to be enemies. And, you know, on a whole range of issues, Supreme Leader Khamenei's made that very clear. And the deal doesn't really represent any <clears throat> fundamental strategic change on Iran's part. It's a tactical change to get sanctions relief, but they haven't mm. decided that nuclear weapons are a bad thing. Do you think if it's not a, uh, a reproachment, maybe a detente almost between the two? Well, I think, you know, certainly uh, even before the nuclear deal, there was some tacit cooperation in the case of Iraq because right. we're both battling a common enemy, mm -hmm. and that will continue. I think the big test will be Syria. I mean, obviously, uh, Secretary Kerry is hopeful that the nuclear deal will lead to a uh, basis for a political settlement in Syria and create conditions for the U.S. to work with Russia and Iran. I, I have to say I'm quite skeptical that that's possible for the time being uh, because I don't think the Iranians and the Russians are prepared to abandon Assad, and I don't think we have a credible alternative. I mean, the opposition we're supporting is so weak compared to the more radical groups, al-Nusra and Islamic State, and obviously we're not going to be able to cooperate with them. So I don't think the situation on the ground is likely to produce a political settlement in Syria, but I, I, you know, that will be a good test case for whether there are some new opportunities for cooperation. Now that we know that the deal is going to happen, what happens now? What are the next steps? What are we going to see over the next few months and years as the deal is implemented? Well, the first big challenge will be implementation. <clears throat> I mean, the Iranians need to take a series of steps in order to get sanctions relief. And it's a little unclear how long it will take for them to, to actually achieve those steps. This will be reducing their stockpile of low-enriched uranium. Uh, they'll have to remove a large number of centrifuges and put them in storage. They have to cooperate with the IAEA on its investigation of past um, nuclear weapons activities. It, this could take six months. It could take 12 months. I mean, it's mm -hmm. very hard, I think, to predict. But my guess is that during Obama's term, so sometime next year, um, those steps will be achieved, and the IAEA will verify Iran has taken the necessary steps, and then they'll begin to get some sanctions relief. It may not be in time to help uh, President Rouhani very much in the February 2016 Majlis elections, 
where my guess is that he's probably not going to do very well because I think Supreme Leader Khamenei, to some extent, has to compensate the hardliners who are very suspicious of this nuclear agreement and very worried that it will strengthen reformists or strengthen those who want to undercut their position. Mm-hmm. So I, if I had to guess, my guess would be that at least in the near term, Rouhani is probably not going to get much political benefit out of this agreement. Uh, but of course, Iranian politics are notoriously difficult to predict, and what happens in the near term may very different, may be very different from what happens a couple of years down mm-hmm. the road. And for our allies in the region, like Saudi and Israel, obviously they have had a skeptical eye on this deal. Um, Certainly Bibi Netanyahu has been outspoken about his opposition. Well, I don't think there's anything you can say to Prime Minister Netanyahu that would change his mind. I think he is, you know, absolutely convinced that this deal, you know, represents an existential threat to Israel, and he's determined to fight you know, to the last minute. Right. And, you know, frankly, even if the agreement uh, is not overturned by Congress, which clearly it will be the case, there will be efforts next year to try to overturn the agreement by passing new sanctions legislation. So it's not as if the fight over the agreement in Washington is going to end. It'll be like Obamacare. There will be repeated efforts to chip away, pass new sanctions legislation. So this will be a continual running battle uh, between the Republican-controlled Congress and the White House for the rest of Obama's term, mm-hmm. and probably into the next president's term as well. But I do think the fundamental relationship between the U.S. and Israel continues to be strong, and I think at the professional level, uh, meaning diplomats and military officers and intelligence uh, officers, we can continue to cooperate with Israel on implementation, which will be critical. We'll have to form a regular process for consulting uh, between the U.S. and Israel as we monitor the implementation of the agreement. And both, you know, intelligence agencies in Washington and Israel will be watching very carefully to see whether there's any evidence of Iranian cheating. In the case of the Saudis, it really depends on performance. I mean, we've backed them in this Yemen uh, war that they've undertaken. They will want to see how we deal with Syria and Iraq in the aftermath of the nuclear deal. And that's really the fundamental uh, Saudi concern is whether the nuclear deal leads the U.S. to pull its punches uh, against Iran. The Saudis are much less worried about Iran as a nuclear threat. They're more worried about Iran as a political threat. Mm -hmm. And again, this will be up to the White House to try to reassure and take actions that reassure the Saudis and others. But Fundamentally, I don't expect these, um, you know, concerns to be completely alleviated during Obama's term. It'll be something the next administration will have to deal with as well. Well, Dr. Gary Seymour, thank you so much for joining us on Policy Cats today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Matt. It was great. Uh, enjoyed it. Well, if you'd like to learn more, the Belfer Center has published a full report edited by Dr. Seymour entitled The Iran Nuclear Deal, A Definitive Guide. You can find a link to it in our show notes. HKS PolicyCast is produced by Matt Cadwallader and Molly Lanzarota. Photography by Tatiana Johnson. Special thanks to those who help get us out there every week, including Catherine Serafin at Harvard and Ellen Clegg, Nicole Hernandez, and Katie Kingsbury at the Boston Globe. And to you for listening in. See you next week. You've been listening to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. 
You can subscribe to PolicyCast on iTunes, Stitcher, and elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. And let us know what you think on Twitter, at PolicyCast. Thank you.